This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Has Pfizer finally given us the good news we've been waiting for when it comes to stopping this virus or curbing it? The company announcing today its vaccine candidate showing a 90% success rate. That is a lot higher than the typical flu vaccine, better than expected. But uh, will it work? What needs to be done next? We will look into that. It's one thing to have a successful vaccine, but something else to distribute millions and millions of doses. And then you got to get people to accept the doses once you have a plan to get them out there. So we'll look into that aspect, too. We will also hear from a member of President-elect Joe Biden's new coronavirus task force. But the Pfizer vaccine, the news today, Dr. Shane Crotty, virologist, professor, the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. So, doctor, we don't know much about the details of this, but take us through some of what we do know. You're right, but there's... uh... There's a decent amount of information, um, both just from all the paperwork they had to file in advance and the info they put in there. And I think the key pieces of information are that they they had 94 cases of COVID-19 to, to measure from. So that that's a that's a substantial number of cases to be measuring in a vaccine trial. So that that 90% number uh, looks really solid to most of us. So what are the next steps for them? And then what does that 90% number mean? Because people out there probably go, oh, well, let's get it to 100. But what are normal vaccines like? What's what's the flu efficacy rate? So the, the flu is really the, the, the bad one. So the, the flu efficacy rate generally floats around 50 percent. Um, and, and, uh, but uh, great vaccines like the measles vaccine, polio vaccine, smallpox vaccine really are very close to 100 percent. You know, a scientist would certainly never say 100 percent, but they're, they're, all three of those are certainly in the 99 percent range. Uh, and so to see something yeah, like 90 percent uh, in, in this trial compared to, yeah, for example, what one sees in flu clinical trials looks pretty good. That, that number means the, the percent of people who got sick compared to the number of people who are expected to get sick. And so that's based on the placebo group. The vaccine trials have to be huge because you have to have half the people not get immunized or immunized with a placebo. And then the other half get immunized. So the only way to tell that the people in the immunized group are protected are to see how many cases did you get in the placebo group. So based on the number of people who got sick in the placebo group, the calculation is 90% of the people in the in the vaccinated group were, were protected. Now, this is, uh, of course, uh, has not yet been peer reviewed. It has not been published in any medical journal. Uh, and uh, I've said before on the on the program, I'm in, and, and to be transparent, I'm in the Pfizer trial. So here's my question. What don't we know from what we learned today? Yeah, it's a really good question. To be fair, clinical trials, right, have... Um, multiple external advisory boards that have to analyze the data in a blinded way. And so that, that is basically, for, for academic research, the peer review process is, is absolutely essential. For, for clinical trials, it's really those external um, advisory boards, interpretation boards that are critical. And they've already taken a look at it, right? So like there's an independent safety board that's been watching the whole time and they've said it's safe, right? And this thing's been given to 40,000 people, well, 20,000 half the group. And, and then the, the efficacy signal was also signed off on by this uh, the external independent advisory board. So so that's one reason we can put uh, some some trust in it. Obviously, uh, I'm a scientist. I'm going to want to see the, the 
the raw data and the, the published paper, but the, the fact that it's already been through those two levels of independent review um, are important. Uh, the next steps are really uh, some of the more detailed pieces of information. So um, does it prevent, does it prevent, does it protect against severe cases? Does it protect the elderly? Um, how long does the vaccine last? And does it prevent transmission? So, so those are open questions that are important questions. Some of those, there's already going to be data that they have in hand. And some, I think they just, they have to wait until there are more cases. I mean, to me, I'd say day by day, right? Uh, for today, it's, it's a pretty fantastic announcement to say 90%. Like it's also a very good sign for the other candidate vaccines because there are like five major vaccine candidates. This is just one of them. And, and all of them were relatively similar in their, in their other pieces of data. So at this point, there's no reason really not to expect that at least one of those other vaccines will probably have good signs as well. So that's, yeah, that's great. Dr. Shane Crotty, virologist, professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. If Pfizer's vaccine gets the go-ahead for distribution, how will it all work? The vaccines just don't, you know, appear <laughs> at doctors' offices by themselves. They sprout little wings and they fly to you. <laughs> uh, then there's the issue of the transition from one administration to the next. So how does that impact things? Uh, Dr. Eric Toner, senior scientist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So, doctor, Pfizer's vaccine is uh, special. It's got some special issues we need to look at. Indeed it does. Uh, their vaccine needs to be maintained at 70 degrees below zero uh, centigrade. Uh, which is extraordinarily cold. And it's, it's not something uh, that can be maintained in a normal freezer. So it requires special freezers um, that are having to be built and uh, placed around the country. But they also will, will require a huge supply of, of dry ice to be able to um, handle the vaccine and transport. It, it'll be much more complicated than a normal vaccine. So what does that look like in practice, our best guess? Is this like some sort of drive-through central site where you can have the freezers there, or is this, it makes it more complicated than just like going down to Walgreens? Yes, it won't be available in most uh, pharmacies or doctor's offices. It will require special locations that have either freezers or the dry ice capacity and probably will be either drive-throughs or perhaps uh, points of dispensing in large um, clinics or auditoriums or that sort of thing. It, it won't be where you get your normal shots. Now, I vaguely remember as a as a mere child <laughs> when they gave out the polio vaccine on sugar cubes. In those days, it was fairly well organized. Of course, I think I was six or everything seemed organized then but i remember going to the cafeteria in school and the nurses came out with giant trays of sugar cubes all with the uh, saturated with the uh, polio vaccine i can't think of a time since and maybe you can when this kind of effort that you're talking about having sort of centralized places where people can go and get by the way as we pointed out earlier not just one but in case in the case of pfizer two vaccines spaced three weeks apart. Has anything like that happened recently? Well, to some degree, we did try to do this uh, in 2009 during the influenza pandemic then. Uh, it was distributed through uh, public health points of dispensing as well as through pharmacies and doctor's offices. So we do have some experience to draw on. 
Yes, but here we have, with the Pfizer case, the freezer issue. That makes it much yes. more difficult. Yes, that is something we've never dealt with before. We've never dealt with a vaccine that, that was uh, this fragile and required such deep, uh, such an ultra-cold chain. We have other candidates um, that are in the works. Do we likely hit on maybe this one's 90 percent, maybe the next one is 70, but has fewer logistical issues or are they all kind of in the same vein? Well, well, they're all different and uh, we don't know about um, how effective the other ones are. Um, all the other ones require uh, would be more easily uh would be more easily distributed than this one because they don't require the ultra cold chain. You just said something that I find very interesting. Um, all of these vaccine candidates are being tested against placebo. They're not being tested against one another. So how do we know Correct. which one is the one for me or you or Mike or, or a relative? How do we know? Yeah, we, we don't know uh, at this point. Um, hopefully, by the time the trials are all done, we'll have a lot more information. And uh, probably CDC will make recommendations regarding uh, which ones we best better for which populations. So some may be better for the elderly, some may be better for people with certain health conditions. Some will obviously be easier logistically, some may have fewer side effects. So uh, we won't, won't yeah. really know this until um, much later. Well, I was going to say when much later, I'm in one trial, it's two years. So we're not going to really know for two years. Well, we'll, we'll know some preliminary information, but you're right. Uh, the trials, we won't know everything about these vaccines for until well after people have received them. Eric Toner, doctor, internist, emergency medical physician, also senior scientist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Toner, thanks. Coming up after this short break, can you be forced to get a coronavirus vaccine? If there's a vaccine ready to go, you can distribute it, but can you force people to take it? How many people will line up to get it? Can they say, you know, to go back to work, to go to school, and you got to have one of these? Dr. Paul Offitz, professor of vaccinology, University of Pennsylvania, director of the Vaccine Education Center, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization. So, doctor, with uh, multiple vaccines possibly coming out, will this make things more complicated so that people who don't trust vaccines already are going to look at all this and go, uh, I don't know? Well, I think, you know, you take the best vaccine that's available at the time. Right now, it looks like the Pfizer data, uh, and we haven't seen the specific data, it's all been scienced by press release, but if you look at the the press release, uh, the, the claim is that the vaccine is about 90% effective, which is certainly more effective than would have been imagined. It looks to be safe in tens of thousands of people. And, uh, and I think soon the FDA will be evaluating this, as will the CDC, and it's very likely that this vaccine could roll out into the arms of the American public in December, at which point then, thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then millions of people will be vaccinated and you'll have even more data in terms of efficacy and safety. And I think as you get more and more information, presumably people will become less and less uh, frightened about these vaccines. Should people be concerned, surprised, nonchalant about the fact that there may come a time in the not too distant future when you'll have rival 
vaccines available so that maybe your neighbor is getting Moderna's and you may be getting a Pfizer and maybe your cousin, uh, you know, in New York is is getting a Johnson and Johnson one. Does that matter at all? Well, I think I think the, the good news about this vaccine is that it showed that the, the, the strategy which is actually common for all the vaccines you just mentioned, works, which is to tell you, you take the gene that codes for the coronavirus spike protein, which is that pro- protein that emanates from the surface of the virus. It's the protein that's responsible for attaching the virus to the cell. So, so the way these all these so-called genetic plug-and-play strategies work is that you basically are inoculated with the gene that codes for that protein. So your body makes the, the coronavirus protein, then your body makes an antibody response. It's true of the mRNA vaccines, it's true of the DNA vaccines, it's true of the replicant defective incompetent vaccines, all of which were, were made by AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, and those are likely to be the first vaccine. So in many ways, they're all similar. Whether there's dramatic differences among them, we'll see over time. But I think, frankly, the only way to immunize a large percentage of the American population is going to be with more than one vaccine. When you start to get long enough in a conversation with somebody who is not super gung-ho about vaccines, they say, I also worry about a mandate. You know, my work says I have to have it or my school says the kid has to have it. Does this end up being something that they say, everybody, you got to go get it? I don't think that's going to happen. First of all, for practical reasons, it's going to be hard to make enough vaccine to give it to the people who are in the so-called frontline responder or, or group that's that's aimed at, as determined by the CDC and the National Academy of Medicine. Secondly, these are novel vaccine strategies. I mean, we haven't had any commercial experience using these kinds of vaccines before. There is no messenger RNA vaccine that we've ever used before. So I don't think it would be fair, frankly, to mandate this at least uh, early on until we have a robust data, frankly, in millions of people. But you have polls, some polls are showing as high as, you know, half the, those polls saying they don't want to get a vaccine until they're absolutely satisfied that it's safe and, and that it, it's effective. If, if that figure holds true in the real world, how effective would any of these vaccines be? Right. But again, those those polls are all, all done really asking about a theoretical vaccine. Would you get a COVID-19 vaccine at a time when no COVID-19 vaccine existed? I mean, now we have more information about a vaccine. We know that at least one vaccine appears to be about 90 percent effective. We know it's been given to tens of thousands of people and doesn't appear to have at least a relatively uncommon serious side effect. So now you have more specific information. And as it starts to roll out and it's given to more and more people, then I think people get more and more comfortable with it. And, you know, this is a virus that's brought us to our knees. We we you know, it's completely changed the way we live our lives. Vaccines are one way to, to get us out of this, along with hygienic measures and to a lesser extent population or herd immunity. Um, so I think vaccines are going to be important. And I think as your neighbor gets it and your friend gets it and other people get it and you see that, you know, they haven't uh, gone bald or, you know, grown a third eye, people will be. <laughs> get Nobody has a tail. All right. Uh, Dr. Paul Offit, infectious disease uh, pediatrician, University of Pennsylvania, director of Vaccine Education Center, uh, Children's Hospital, Philadelphia. But if, so- but if somebody is a already bald, how will they know? (laughs) Maybe it'll bring your hair back. (laughs) Now that the U.S. will be getting a new president in Joe Biden, he's already getting to work on fighting the pandemic. Biden has formed a new coronavirus task force that will guide and advise the federal government. Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He talks to WCCO's David Lee about what his role is going to be. I am a member and uh, look forward to working however I can to help advise him or anyone at the federal government level on what we can do to address this uh, this pandemic. 
Do you know some of your peers on that list, Mike? I do. I do. Actually, I, I know them all. So it's, uh, it's a group of individuals I know are highly committed uh, to doing whatever they can to help. Uh, you know, this is truly a science-rich, nonpartisan group that is just there to, to deal with the pandemic. As you and I have been talking, you know, we have some really tough days ahead of us. These next two to three months are going to be by far the darkest of the pandemic. And you can see right here in Minnesota, I mean, 6,000 cases yesterday reported you know, just uh, two months ago, people would have felt that a thousand to two thousand cases was, you know, just an incredibly high number, and that six thousand number is just where we're starting from. It's going to get much higher. So, I think people can understand we're in a tough spot. This is where we need people. Please understand, protect yourself. You know, save your life and that of a loved one. Please don't be in big crowds. You know, don't don't go and put yourself in harm's way right now. This. This is real. This situation is real. Uh, right now, we are virtually overrun in our intensive care units in this state. This is real. Worldwide, what's the status this morning? Uh, the whole world is uh, a challenge right now. But in in, in one regard, uh, you know, Europe clearly is is a problem. A number of low income countries, but at the same time, Asia is really in quite good shape. If you look from New Zealand, Australia, all the way up to uh, Japan, China, uh, you know, they've done it. They have given us the blueprint to say, how can we not have to suffer all these cases? And it was basically driving the case numbers down through through distancing. And then once you get them to a low number, do the test and tracing, the contact follow up, you know, making sure that we really capture all these cases. And right now, in many of these countries, life is moving on quite normal. Their economies are gaining. And uh, so, you know, we don't have to be like this. We just don't have to be. Uh, it's our own decision in the way. If we elect to neglect responding to this virus, then the virus will find us. And that's what's happening. Whereas in Asia, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing an incredible job at keeping case numbers very, very low. The uh, folks at Pfizer are making news this morning, as you know as well, Dr. O- Osterholm, regarding yeah. this vaccine. Can you give us the details on that and what we should know? Well, I wish I could. Uh, none of us can give details because they've not released anything except for a press release that does not at all tell us about just what they actually accomplished. And what I mean by that is they're, you know, surely demonstrating that they have protected people from a COVID-19 disease or infection. But what they haven't done is said what percentage of those were just mild illnesses and what percentage of those were severe illnesses. Um, you know, we know from the influenza world that, in fact, uh, you know, how well the vaccine works in part depends on certain underlying risk factors, such as if you have higher body mass indexes, you have other underlying diseases. And the very people that we need to protect the most with influenza from having serious outcomes are the people who often respond the least to the vaccine. So, you know, we're hopeful that the Pfizer data for coronavirus will say, you know, we prevented 90 percent of severe infections, hospitalization, deaths. Um, and if we don't have that number there, then, you know, preventing 90 percent of muscle ache, fever and chills is a very different kind of outcome. So it's really too early to put any kind of definition to what this new vaccine research shows us. I mean, thankfully, we have data that says, yes, we at least prevent some kind of illnesses without knowing what they are. But we won't really understand the real impact of the vaccine until we have more data. And uh, we're, we're hoping that gets forthcoming soon. It was interesting, uh, this past weekend I heard the health commissioner on the news, uh, Commissioner Malcolm, talking about uh, we can do all the lockdowns that we want, but basically comes down to us as individuals. Would you agree with that? 
It really is. And it's, you know, it's about protecting our families. You know, you and I have discussed this right here on this show. You know, I have obviously not been popular by discouraging Thanksgiving Day get-togethers, Christmas holidays, planning for that. You know, I have personally been involved with far too many situations where a young, healthy adult comes home to see mom and dad or grandpa and grandma or Uncle Bill and Aunt Jane and unknowingly brings the virus home. And three weeks later, one or more of those family members are dead. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again. So, you know, this is our COVID year. We're just trying to get through till we get vaccines and hopefully get us back to what it was like last year. Don't expect this year to be the same way. So I hope families, for example, are really thinking seriously about holiday plans, about bringing people all back together, knowing that the one outcome that they most fear would be to have a transmission in the house, which bringing a group of people together, eating meals, talking, all the things we love about the holidays, the things that, you know, mean so much to us are the very same things that end up transmitting this virus. So feel empowered this year to say no, not because you're being difficult, but because you love your family. And I think that's going to be a challenge for a lot of families is I worry about that. But I think that's going to be something that we surely we can in our own uh, power deal with. We can actually reduce the chance of having that and feel empowered to stand up and say, I'm not going to put my loved ones at risk. Dr. Osterholm, I uh, look forward to talking to you Wednesday again. Have a good week. Thank and, you, David. Uh, we will see you a little, Have a good yeah, one and, a good... and uh, stay safe yourself. Thanks, Mike. Dr. Mike Osterholm here from the University of Minnesota, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, and now a member of the newly named Coronavirus Task Force. When you think of respiratory viruses like this one, what symptoms come to your mind? Probably fever, sore throat, coughing, you know, the usual. But a new review of 36 studies in the Journal Abdominal Radiology found a lot of people infected with the virus may only show gastrointestinal issues. That includes vomiting, appetite loss, nausea, and diarrhea. Now, this isn't the first study to connect stomach-related symptoms of COVID. Research from Wuhan, China, published in May, found that half of coronavirus patients there reported gastrointestinal symptoms. We're kind of in that uh, era where no one's going to blame you for using a sick day, right? No, that's if right. If you're not sure, just call in and be like, hey, guys. Because just about any symptom seems to, <laughs> seems to match. <laughs> Wait till I figure this out. All right. Uh, thanks for listening to us. We hope you're doing well. Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, find us any of those places.